Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Everybody, and thank you for joining us again. I am Trent. I'm Brashina. And we are joined by a very special guest, someone who you have already heard a little bit about. We are with Donna Latham. Hello, Donna. Introduce yourself just briefly for everyone so they know who they're speaking to. Great. Hi there. I'm Donna Latham. I'm a feminist playwright. I'm originally from Chicago and based in Houston. And I had the wonderful opportunity of working with these fine folks on Yellow Jack. Yeah, and you heard us read a couple of monologues from that incredible play on the last episode. Um, You heard us dissect it, talk about why we loved it, why we are invested in these characters, and why retellings of history are so, so important. Um, but maybe a good place to start would be why you think retellings of history are so important, because you've chosen to devote quite a bit of time to that very thing, not only with Yellow Jack, but with a good bit of your body of work. I I really have. I'm fascinated by those stories from history. I'm dedicated to telling stories with heart and teeth and humor and stories that address the personal and the political. And I love to center them on historically marginalized people, particularly women. So I investigate the way that women move through their worlds and and that resonates with the way that women move through their worlds right now mm. too even though it's set somewhere else it resonates with what we're dealing with in the present mm. um, I like to explore women's friendships the work they do their found families and the way that they kind of seize their agency and power in systems and structures that don't want them to have those things. And what I can say uh, most of my characters have in common with one another is that they don't care what anyone thinks about them. Mm. And you probably uh, noticed that in, in Yellow Jack, Elvira doesn't care mm-hmm. that people will maybe remember her as a whore. Um, Omi Friday 
doesn't care what anyone thinks and just moves through the world that way. She is doing what she believes to be the best thing for herself and for everybody she comes in contact with. And they simply don't care. And that's their power. And I would maybe even say that Blossom, one of the characters in your play, doesn't start out that way. But then you get to see her interact with these women who are already there, so to speak. You know, the the people you mentioned, Elvira and Omi Friday, who don't care what mm-hmm. people think. And then form this found family that includes Blossom. And she now gets to learn from these women who've reached this point of not caring and can pass some of that wisdom to her. Yeah, that's what I was particularly interested in exploring that relationship with Blossom because she's the youngest member of this group of women and she is making her way alone in the world and suddenly sees these older, perhaps more experienced women and says, hmm, and there's a lot to learn among this really powerful group of women. And by the end of the play, Blossom is in a different place. Mm-hmm. That's very true. That's such a cool character. I love that you do that. How did you go on this journey to become this type of artist, Donna? Like, what? where did you start out? How did you get here? I, it's been a long and winding road. Um, I initially started writing plays in college. And from the get-go, I wrote plays for actors I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, I was... Um, After college, I was a high school uh, theater and English teacher and didn't have as much time to do anything apart from from teach. So um, writing plays was always on the the back burner. And when the the long and winding road took me back to that and I had the opportunity to join an ensemble in the Chicago area, I again started writing plays for people I knew, um, but also setting them in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my um, plays, The Haunted Widow Lincoln, um, is about Mary Todd Lincoln, 10 years after her husband's assassination. Um, It's about her insanity hearing in Chicago. And the reason that that play came to be is because I was living in the town of Batavia, where Mary had been confined in a very posh private sanitarium, which is this old, beautiful Victorian house that's now condos and apartments. And I was intrigued during my walkabouts in the morning by the historical plaque in front of it and decided I wanted to learn more about this because I knew about Mary Todd Lincoln, but I had no idea that she had experienced that. And I was able to dig up the court transcripts and I got totally intrigued by that and sucked into the story. Uh, Once I discovered that Mary was not allowed to speak at her insanity hearing and I thought, well, I can do something about that. (laughs) She can, she can speak in my play. Mm -hmm. So um, it's been, as I said, a long and winding road. That's, that's really cool. And I love that you say that you give her the chance to speak in your play. That's such an, interesting like I think that's why I really like Yellow Jack too is because a lot of the characters that were in it historically we wouldn't have heard from um and so you get to give them a voice in your play that's such a cool 
like artist statement journey you know however you want to put it but that's that's awesome I love that for you oh thank you well and it breathes new life into the stories but then also into history and I think that when you breathe new life into history what you're doing is breathing new life into the present as well right Mm -hmm. because we are from where we've come and so when you breathe new life past tense it has a direct effect on our present tense Mm -hmm. um and so i think that when you're talking about these themes of found family that when you give voice to these characters you're giving people a chance to discover found family with these characters, with these women from history who they, who people can relate to and look to and learn from. And now they're not just a footnote in a man's story in a history book. They're a real person who really lived and who you can now look to for your own inspiration on your own journey. I have um, another historical piece that I wrote, Suffer a Witch, is about um, Grace Sherwood's witch trial. It was the last, uh, she was the last person um, who was accused of witchcraft in Virginia. Um, And that was another opportunity where I gave someone a, a voice. I was able to find what remained of the court transcripts. Some of them were destroyed in the Civil War, but I was able to delve into what little remained. And it was just kooky. (laughs) It was apart from from the usual craziness and chaos of a witch trial. It was just intriguing to me to see that this was a powerful woman in the community. She was a midwife and a healer and she assisted women seeking abortions. After her husband passed, she became a real target because she didn't have that level of the patriarchy to protect her. Mm -hmm. And she did really well. She owned property and she did really well. And she was terribly threatening because of of all those things. So in my play, um, she meets a different end than she did in in real life. Um, In in Grace's life, she did spend 20 years in prison and she did eventually get out. But in my play, she's part of this found family of women and of different age groups. and, And they just, are are her people that is so cool i think like i i really love history and um i'm actually from virginia so like that's super interesting to me because i think that happened in i want to say abingdon i think was the place of the last witch trial or somewhere i think i think you're right it's but virginia is one of those really like cool historical places and so it's very interesting to see retellings and like the things that we can glean today from those kinds of things um like I know history is super fascinating but um what kinds of plays do you like to write when it comes to you know like are you prefer historical fiction or do you prefer nonfiction? that sort of thing I kind of run the gamut I find that most of my full-length plays are historical dramas with some dark humor involved and um, 
magical realism or ghosts involved at, mm-hmm. at some level. And then when I write shorter plays, they're just kind of crazy, physical, satirical, um, or parodies kinds of works that are just a whole other bag of tricks. Mm-hmm. But I find that that what draws me again and again is is looking at at women in history. So what does your process look like to start one of these plays? Like, do you start with an idea or is it like, you know, you were saying earlier where you're just walking through the neighborhood and see something and are like, hmm, I want to know about that. It, I find that inspiration for plays comes from lots of different places and I'll kick around a lot of ideas and then something that really deeply resonates with me will be the, the path that I follow or the one that I'll, I'll go with. Um, there, there is so much to explore. And I really find initially that the creative process for me is very chaotic. Well, I'll just get a bucket load of ideas and just take everything in. I, I didn't tell you that I'm a reference librarian. So I have access to all kinds of fascinating information and the ways to find those those fascinating bits of information. So I'll just take everything that I can and make myself kind of a, a little cave of inspiration <laughs> where I might put up historical photos of people or a quotation that I've discovered um, that someone spoke, that a historical person spoke. I might use that. And then I'll try to bring order from all that chaos. <laughs> and give myself an idea of how I might make my entry into the, the play. That's really awesome. lovely. And I think that, I think that um, everyone's creative process is different, but what you're describing feels very true to life in a lot of ways. I, you know, one of the things we talk about on the podcast is the way that art imitates life, but then that life also imitates art. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's not a one-way street as far as the relationship between life and art. And I think that your creative process really f- resonates with the way that we often live as well. I mean, the world is nothing if not chaotic, <laughs> you, you know? And I think, you know, we're recording this episode in the midst of the holiday season, which is a wonderful time of year, but also a chaotic time of year, right? And I it's think fun chaos. it is fun chaos and chaos can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing, but it's a thing, mm-hmm. right? It's a thing. And I think that just as people living our lives, really our goal is to like find in order mm-hmm. in the midst of that chaos our own personal way of ordering the things and moving through said chaos yes. and so i love that description of that creative process because i think that it is it's not just a way to create i think it's also a way to live and i think that in the past few years a lot of that chaos has bubbled to the surface for a lot of people and they've really recognized the way in which they do that which may have been more implicit before but now those things have risen to the surface and people are realizing that they're more actively ordering that chaos and i so anyway i just i loved that description your cave of inspiration is a beautiful image (laughs) and then once i dig in to a first draft i 
give myself permission to know that that draft is going to be a hot mess, that it will be bloated and that there will be too much going on and too much exposition and too much chatter. But part of that is for me where I'm, I'm getting to know the characters and I'm getting to know their backstories and, and what they're bringing to each other and what they're bringing to the circumstances. And I know that I'll start throwing things out once, I, once I've fallen in love with the characters and I really know them intimately, I'll start throwing things out and streamlining lining that play. But I know that that first draft will be a mess. <laughs> I really like the way you say you want to get to know the characters in that first draft. I think um, for people who don't write plays or write any any sort of thing, I think they sometimes believe that we already know like what the characters are going to be before we get into it. And the way that you described that just shows that it is an ever-evolving process. I'm trying to get to know the people that are on this page and how they interact with their world around them. So I love I love that description of writing. Thank yeah. you. I really, really do have to give myself that opportunity to to know the characters and to to get involved in their their world. So I need to put my head into the situation with them. I need to put my heart into it too and make sure that I love them as humans and I'm because I'm going to put them through hell and I I need to know how much I care for them before I subject them to that. Yeah. We're laughing because it's so true, right? But but you're describing it as a compassionate process, mm-hmm. which I think is so important. Um, and as someone who has read in the past few years, quite literally hundreds upon hundreds of plays through this process of epiphanies that we've created, mm-hmm. you can tell the difference between writers who write compassionately and writers who don't. Mm-hmm. There is simply a qualitative difference between someone who feels for their characters and knows their characters and someone who is using characters as plot points. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there is just a difference in the way that you approach writing a person, you know, and that's how you describe them. I need to know them as people. Mm -hmm. And that's very different than knowing them as characters. Right. And I think that, so this more holistic approach, this compassionate approach is I think what makes great stories because that's, that's people's entry into the story. If they can't identify with one of the characters, then it's almost impossible for them to care. It is. And if you don't care for that character, then the person watching or the person reading is not going to feel the care for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the heart and soul of theater because theater is, it's just empathy. It's the exploration of what makes us human. And I think that is the the heart and soul of it. And I view the characters as as fellow humans. Wow. Would you say that that gets into like your philosophy of playwriting? I think so. I I want the what I create to be character driven. Um, and so sometimes I'll feel that my I need to tighten the plot up a little because it's 
there's so much character, I need to tighten up this plot. But then I think, no, but this works. This is the exploration of, of these characters and what they're doing at this particular moment in time. I, I, and I think it's important that you bring this up because I think that there is a school of thought around playwriting that is very plot, plot, plot. You know, it's all about driving action. That's what people talk about a lot of the time with playwriting because you're watching something unfold. It's different than a novel, for example, right? Um, they're watching things happen. And so, you know, you hear it said that like every line of the play should be driving the action forward. You know, you hear things like that a lot. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to negate that because there's some definite truth in it. But I think that what you're saying softens that school of thought. You know, not every line necessarily has to drive the action. Some of the lines can just be people being people mm -hmm. for us to get to know and love and care about. Um, and then when the lines are driving the action, we care about those actions because we care about the people that are enacting them or the people which it's being enacted upon. That is so true. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And it like back to life imitating art and art imitating life um we don't always say things that are driving the action of whatever we're doing i mean right. you know how many times do you have a weird thought in the middle of the day you're like huh i wonder if like cheez-its were discovered in a factory or something you know like you're just <laughs> maybe that's just me were I... cheez-its discovered in a factory do you... i have no idea okay. that was a random thought that well, i just we know came what up with. we're googling later <laughs> <laughs> that should be like a, a bit that we have. It's just like, what are we Googling later? <laughs> Seems to be a theme. But like, you know, how many times do we have those like random conversations with people that just they don't do anything. But afterward, we're just like, oh, that was nice or that was weird and just keep going. You know, so like it, it's I like the idea that not everything in a play has to be 
superbly motivated by the action it can just be um and i think it also gives like more realistic characters because in reading yellow jack i felt like i knew the characters that they were very real people um you know even if they're just based loosely on historical figures you know it felt like they were very real i knew what they wanted i knew what they were going for in the show um and i think that's all a testament to how you write them so that was awesome well thank you i think when i when i'm in the process of writing if i write myself into a corner and i think oh man you know this is this is a mess how am i going to undo this i just th- think okay what what would the characters do mm. and and try to have a character driven way out instead of um something that might be action or plot motivated so cool when i write i also tend to be fairly character driven i really like the people to speak for themselves and one of the reasons i like playwriting is i feel like i am observing something unfold and almost just transcribing it um how would you describe your relationship are you some do you like to map things out do you like to have a loose idea and see what happens what is your what is that messy process of the first draft look like as you're getting things on the page I will map some things out, but I won't be beholden to it. I'll I'll know that it'll probably change. And I typically write like a prologue that kind of begins most of my plays. It's just a little bit of action that'll bounce us into the immediacy of, of the situation. Um, I find when I try to outline something or map it out too specifically that it's it's confining for me. Mm-hmm. So I l- kind of like to jump in and out of that chaos where I'll free fall a little bit and then I'll say, okay, time to pull it back and tighten it up. That is so cool. Do you have any plays right now that you know, you've know you put out or that you're currently working on that started in one place and ended someplace completely different? Hmm, that's a really good question. I have one play that I really, really struggled with um, that uh, it's called A Midnight Clear, The Christmas Truce of 1914. And it was based on the historical Christmas truce early in World War One, when um, soldiers just said, that's it. It's Christmas. We're not going to kill each other. And they celebrated with each other. Hmm. And I really struggled with that play because of the structure that I had chosen where I was going back and forth between the trenches and the folks back home who were waiting for their loved ones and were scared to death for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's ended up that I had started the play in London where I saw, we saw the characters together before the war started and before the men were like, yay, war, and ran off to the war. And then I took them into the trenches and it ended that I just plopped them immediately from the get-go into the trenches. And it, wow. it was a much stronger approach in the end, mm-hmm. but it also required just a complete 
it was like I took the seam ripper to it <laughs> and reassembled it. Mm-hmm. So that that was that was a tough one. <laughs> I, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's what we have to be willing to do is let the play inform us, right? Mm-hmm. So we we start with these ideas, and I love that you said you write more than you need. I think that's super important and excellent mm-hmm. advice, also, um, to not. I know that everyone says first drafts are supposed to be messy, and but everyone still feels like it's like like that their first draft is worse than everyone else's. You know, like you know, everyone has that like first draft of shame. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something really important about like almost like shooting for longer than necessary on purpose mm-hmm. as this kind of exploration, but then letting the play speak for itself in terms of what structure makes the most sense for it maybe you need to start in a different place because the goal is to serve the story right mm-hmm. and so right. if if we are placing what we want a play to be before what the play needs to be to be the best version of itself then it's not going to work mm-hmm. and i think you know i n- know so many people who get precious about things they've written and the moment that you do that you've limited yourself right and I I think that it anyway so I love this idea of the seam ripper and the reassembly you know you let you let the story lead the way um and I I think that that's a really important thing to remember with Mm -hmm. playwriting is that it's about presenting something important in a way that people will most be impacted by it, most remember it, most receive it. And so sometimes, m- most of the time, even, you don't know exactly what that is in the beginning. You have to kind of let the story inform you as it goes. Mm-hmm. When I first got into theater, when I first started getting interested in like writing theater, because I started writing skits like pretty early when I was in middle school and high school, I would watch interviews about you know, movies. And they were talking about, oh, well, we left this on the cutting room floor. We left this on the cutting room floor. I was always like, how do you do that? Like, I just know every place I want this to go. And now, uh, you know, sitting around with other playwrights, I'm always like, oh, I wrote this extra scene and I don't know where it's going to go, but it's here now. (laughs) So it's, it's very interesting to like hear this from other playwrights, be in community with other people who write things for theater and film and talk about, you know, the things that are just extra like it was fun to write but i don't think it has a place in this thing that i'm writing anymore (laughs) well are there any um are there any like prominent scenes that you have from plays that are kind of like that or like oh i wrote it for something else and then i thought oh maybe it'll fit somewhere else or do you just have some scenes out there hanging i do have i i have um I just call it the scene file and it's just a word document where scenes that didn't work, I'll just dump them in there Mm -hmm. because I might be able to rethink them, repurpose them, and they might make an appearance some other time. Or sometimes if I really love a particular line Mm -hmm. or I think, oh, this is really funny, but it doesn't work in this play, I'll just save it because I know I can do something with it another time Mm -hmm. so I have some that I have never found a home for but others that I've been able to repurpose 
cool. I love that. Um, one of the other playwrights that we've had on here was Amy Tofty. Um, she she's who we just produced the world premiere of her play this past fall, and one of the characters in that play, Ricktica, was a character that she had written a monologue for literally years before this play came to life, and she'd been wow. obsessed with this character. She loved this monologue, but it just never had a home. And then when she came upon this idea for Cardboard Castles Hung on Walls, and if you haven't listened to that episode, you should. It's Absolutely. a great play, and Amy's fantastic. Yes. But she finally found a home for that character. Mm -hmm. So I love that we're discovering that this is common practice for people, right? Because it's not that the writing isn't good. It's not that the idea isn't good. It's just that it's currently homeless, you know? Yeah. And we have these homeless scenes or these homeless characters and eventually we might find a home for them. And so we don't want to get rid of them. They're still worthwhile. They just haven't found their place in our own little writing world yet. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So, so cool. Um, Donna, I would like, I would like to ask... What other advice? We've brought this up a couple of times. I think you've given some good advice about first drafts. I think you've given some good advice about a willingness to rip things apart and put them back together. But what advice would you have for playwrights in terms of writing, in terms of career, finding a place for the plays that they write, just anything that you have found valuable on your own journey that you would be willing to share? Something that's been really helpful for me is to have established relationships with theaters where um, I've had the opportunity to write something specifically for that theater um, and then an opportunity to then share with them something else that I've written in the future. So I have this lovely relationship of something that we've created together and then the possibility that we might create something else together. So I find that very helpful, even if you are just somebody who volunteers with a theater, um, you can find ways to make connections with the people there and to start building those relationships. So I've found that very valuable and I know that other playwrights have found that valuable too. And then I, I'm always submitting my works. I'm just constantly submitting. It's something that I do very frequently. So I'm always searching for a home for, for particular works. It feels like that is the what the like one common thread with all artists is that we're always submitting our work no matter what it is if we're directors we're submitting our portfolio if we're playwrights we're submitting our plays if we're actors we're submitting our auditions like always submissions 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 all the time <laughs> yes right yeah it is i i think that if it's easy for that to feel painful you That's know the, like yeah. it's easy for that to really feel difficult mm -hmm. and to really feel like a drag really feel i mean it's 
I think that universally people are like, it's not like my favorite part of what I do. Mm -hmm. Right. And so how do you overcome that part? You know, how do you continue to submit and submit and submit knowing Mm -hmm. that such a small percentage of those submissions will go anywhere? How do you personally kind of overcome that struggle? Sometimes it honestly can feel like a real grind and, and feel like a drag. And sometimes because you're kind of in limbo with, with things, um, I try to seize those little moments of encouragement that I might get back a really personalized response from a, a literary manager or from a theater. I'll get some some really personalized encouraging pass or it was down to the final two and we went with the other play kind of thing. I, even though it's really disappointing, I try to hold on to those bits of encouragement that I'm receiving from the outside world because so much of, of the process is self-directed and self-motivating um, that it's just, yay. <laughs> it's great to, to hear something from the outside world. So I do hang on to those things. And I think it's important to note that it, it's not always like a full win. That's the encouragement. A personalized pass can still be an encouragement because even if it's not being produced, making it down to the final two out of how many submissions still speaks so much to you as a writer and to that script as a play. So I think that that's a really good reminder that like, even when we don't get the thing that we want, it doesn't have to be discouraging. You can still find encouragement within that. I spent several years um, reviewing plays for a, a big Lord theater. And I really believe, um, I was just freelancing. I really believe that that time made me a better playwright mm-hmm. because I read so many, many plays mm. and I, I'm, and I wrote encouraging passes. And I realized that sometimes this this might be a beautiful play that resonates with me, but it's just not a fit for this particular theater or for the vibe of this theater for for the aesthetic. Um, So I try to hold on to that as well, (laughs) that having experienced the process from the inside, I know that there are lots of plates spinning for these decisions to be made. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's important. It's a play can be objectively good but choosing plays is incredibly subjective because it depends on the company and their own mission and their own vision it depends on the community that they perform in and who their audience is it depends on the strengths of their production value and the strengths of their actors. There are so many factors that have nothing to do with the play itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that can be an encouragement. It's It sometimes literally has nothing to do with the play um, because there's so, min- there's so much that goes into producing a play outside of the script itself. Yeah. Theater is so cool. (laughs) I feel like I discover something new in every episode, but like, um, 
every aspect of theater it's just we're creating something that you know we haven't created before or we're doing a, a new take on an old classic story and every time you have everyone just like pouring themselves into this um you know new creation so it's I just love talking about theater and getting to witness it from different people's perspective because it looks different from person to person and then from a playwright to a director to an actor. So this has been awesome. I love this. Yeah. And, you know, thank you so much, Donna, for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for trusting us with Yellow Jack all that time ago and, you know, starting this relationship. Um, We, think the work that you're doing is important we think that historical retellings really matter yes. and i think particularly the feminist perspective that you bring to them mm-hmm. is important um you know one of the things that you said multiple times was giving voice to these characters mm-hmm. and because your characters are m- historically marginalized groups of people mm-hmm it's all the more important that we get to hear them speak now. Yes. Um, and so we are excited about you. We're excited about your work. Mm-hmm. Um, before we close, I'd love to give you one more opportunity to just share anything that you think is worth sharing about one of your plays, about your career, a word of encouragement or inspiration for other artists. Um, and then, Tell us if you'd like where people can find out more about you. Do you have plays on New Play Exchange? Do you have a website? Anything like that that you want to share for people to find out more? I do have a website, which is DonnaLatham.com. And I do have my plays listed on NPX, so you can access them there. Um, One thing that I have been giving as a tip lately, and I think it's because everyone is so tired because we've gone through a lot of things in the past few years. The the past few years have been heavy. And a lot of people are really feeling that. A lot of artists that I associate with are really feeling that. So I'm just giving a little tip. Step away from it if you need to. Mm-hmm. If it feels like, a, like if submitting, for example, feels like such a grind, or if you're having such a hard time finding that time to write, just step away for for a bit it's okay to do that Mm -hmm. and then come on back when when you're ready that's a really lovely word um and i think i think it's a word worth ending on yeah today (laughs) as you move through the world if you need to step away from whatever it may be give yourself permission to do so yes because you can always come back yeah and plus, Donna said it was okay. So <laughs> she's always right. <laughs> um, Mackenzie is not here today, so I'm probably going to mess up where you can find us, but I'm going to do my best. We are Imagine This Podcast. You can find us at our website, wildimaginingswaco.com. You can also find us at our social media. We have an Instagram, Imagine This Theater Pod theater with an re and you can also find us at our lovely producers rogue media network but for now thank you for joining us thank you for taking the time to get to know donna who is just the most lovely and we always appreciate you taking the time to imagine this with us thanks everybody thank you 